Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Kathleen Water Sander, author of John W. Garrett and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Kathleen Waters Sander, author of John W. Garrett and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Why did you write the book? Well, he's a very intriguing figure, and I came across him as I was writing about his daughter, Mary Elizabeth Garrett, uh, who was a great philanthropist and an activist at the turn of the century. And when her father, John W., died, she inherited his great railroad fortune, and instead of squandering it on Gilded Age, fun and adventure, she uh, became a great activist and philanthropist. And as I was writing about uh, Mary Garrett, I of course came across her father um, and uh, in a sort of superficial way, but became very intrigued with him. And at some point I thought, well, it'd be fun to write a dual biography. But then that would have been uh, sort of overwhelming, and I turned to Mary Elizabeth because she uh, really needed her story to be told, but then that left John Garrett, and his story needs to be told, too, so I was very glad to be able to tell it. Why does his story need to be told? Well, he was a very important figure in railroading uh, at the uh, mid-century, 19th century. He took over the B&O Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in 1858. Uh, he was the seventh president, and the B&O is important because it was the country's first railroad, started 1828. And uh, it, it's a, a legendary railroad. It has been um, taken in by other railroads. Uh, it's now CSX, I think. But uh, in its early years, it was the first. And uh, the B&O is considered to be the, the railroading university of the country it, because of its techniques, its management, its uh, technology. And he took it over in 1858 when it was really teetering on bankruptcy. Uh, uh, we had the, the panic of 1857, and uh, companies, railroads were really feeling the pain. And he took it over at that time, and he uh, stayed in the job for 26 years, which was uh, pretty impressive. Uh, most railroad presidents were uh, shown the door after about two or three years, but uh, Gareth lasted for a long time, and he uh, just had gotten hit his stride in his job uh, that he had taken over in 1858 when the Civil War erupted, and that, of course, was a major event for everyone, but for the Baltimore and Ohio, it was especially challenging and perilous because the B&O if you look at a map, it ran right through Maryland and Virginia, uh, through uh, a Union state of Maryland and what became a Confederate state of, of Virginia. And it was also the only supply line going into uh, Washington. So it was a really critical railroad during the Civil War. 
and Garrett had been raised and professed to be a Southern Democrat. So he could have just thrown his support behind the con Confederacy. But he was also a very smart businessman, and he knew that he had to, um, that Baltimore and Maryland depended on commerce with the North and with the West. And if he cut those commercial ties, it would have meant uh, really economic hardship for, for the state. So he was a businessman, not a politician, and he uh, then uh, professed to, uh, or d dedicated himself to helping Lincoln and the Union. And he was, uh, the B&O was a real player in, in helping with the war. What was railroading like in 1858? Well, it was, uh, I'm sure, an adventure uh, talking uh, from the passenger's point of view. It could be uh, a sort of a challenge to go from one point to another. It was uh, not very safe. In fact, Congress uh, was keeping an eye on all the railroad accidents. I mean, you think, uh, I came up here on the Amtrak and, you know, the trains just passed within inches of each other and you think, gosh, that computer save us from head-on collisions. But uh, not so in 1858, uh, although there was the uh, telegraph that helped, but there were railroad accidents. Uh, the passengers were not particularly comfortable. There were stoves put in the front of the cars, and if you sat in the front of the car, you might be overcome with smoke. If you sat in the back, you would be freezing. If you went under an underpass or through a tunnel, uh, you might get wet. So it was not uh, a great experience. But Americans really, by 1858, had taken to the railroads. At first, they were a little concerned, uh, a little overwhelmed by the technology, but by 1858, the railroads had proven themselves as the primary way to transport goods and people. So it uh, definitely, by 1858, by the 1850s, um, there were a lot of railroads, the big four, of which the B&O was one. There was uh, the B&O, the Pennsylvania, John Garrett's constant nemesis, and uh, also the Erie and Vanderbilt's New York system. So they were considered the big four. But by 1858, dozens of little railroads were sprouting up. I guess we can equate that with the aviation business now, where you have the big airlines and then you have the little ones that are constantly sort of undermining the routes and the fares and that sort of thing. So it, it was very similar. What did it take to start a railroad back then? Uh, it took... Uh, a lot of risk. In the case of the B&O, uh, it was uh, funded both uh, through private investment and also through public investment. And uh, because it was the first major capital um, expenditure in the country, it, it, it just could not be funded with private investors buying a few shares of stock. So the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore had to pitch in a lot of money. And so it took a lot of money, and uh, that that uh, dual ownership proved to be a real problem for every president of the B&O because that meant that uh, the the board had had to be represented by both private interests and, and public. And the private investors, of course, wanted money. They wanted their profits back. They wanted their investments back through dividends. Public investors wanted whatever was good for the, uh, to bring business to, to Baltimore and to Maryland. 
So there was always a, a lot of um, acrimonious debate on the board with the B&O. Oh, so the, like the city of Baltimore, the state of Maryland were stockholders in Oh yes, uh -huh. big stockholders, yes, definitely. And uh, Garrett was elected in 1858 to represent the private investors, which is uh, something that he held to through his whole pre presidency by making sure his investors got their uh, investment back through dividends. And this, of course, caused problems too. But yeah, it was a, a very unique, uh, unique situation to have uh, that kind of ownership of the, uh, on the board. I want to back up a little bit to the, you said the B&O was the first chartered railroad. Mm -hmm. uh, when railroads started to come along, there were already canals in place. So what advantage did railroads have over canals that they ended up winning out? Well, that was a real battle, too, because, of course, canals were the main uh, roads, like the National Road that ran through Maryland and up through Pennsylvania. Uh, were the was the main uh, uh, means of transportation, and then canals came along. And uh, New York in 1817 started the Erie Canal, and that was really a major, uh, it was a major engineering feat for sure. But the advantage of canals was that they could move people and goods much faster just on a, a level uh, canal or down the rivers. And it cut transportation costs by 90% as opposed to overland. But uh, the drawback with canals is that in the north, they froze in the winter. And so that impeded their, their ability to, to move freight and, and, and passengers. And the, the Erie Canal, actually, New York's Erie Canal, actually spurred on the development of the B&O in, uh, in the mid-1820s because New York was now imposing itself on Baltimore's great mercantile history and profitability, and uh, Baltimoreans had to come up with a much better idea to uh, move their goods to the West. Baltimore traded primarily with the West and the North. So, um, so the, the whole threat of the Erie Canal in New York um, caused a lot of uh, Baltimore businessmen to put their heads together and there was this newfangled idea in England of railroads putting um, a, a, a cart, a, a freight wagon, on wheels on iron tracks and having it pulled by a horse. And uh, it was sort of an audacious plan but Baltimore thought well this is going to really supersede the canals. and. Soon, luckily, after the inauguration of the B&O in 1828, uh, steam came along, and that helped to propel the, the cars a lot faster. So um, uh, that was a, a real plus. But oh. there, I'm sorry, there, but there was always a competition between the B&O and its northern competitors from that point. And when John Garrett came along, why did they choose him to be president? Well, he, he professed <coughs> that he didn't want to be president, but Johns Hopkins, uh, the man who we're familiar with now, who started the university and the, hus and the hospital, uh, was a great friend of the Garrett family. And he was also the largest stockholder by the 1850s uh, in the B&O. He was a very powerful financier and merchant, and he 
proposed that uh, Garrett run for president. Garrett had been on the board, the B&O board, for three years already. He joined the board in 1855. And from the moment he stepped into the boardroom, he started um, uh, displaying his authoritarian style. And, and uh, uh, he, he was very knowledgeable about, about transport and um, commerce. He had grown up with that in his father's firm. So he knew about these issues. But he didn't know a lot about railroading. Uh, but uh, right away, he was, he was very sure of himself. And so he, he was on the board for three years. And then he, uh, Hopkins, thought he'd be a good candidate for the presidency. And so Hopkins uh, just lobbied the board, these two factions of the board, the private and public, and persuaded them that John Garrett would be the right man for the job. And he was. What was it that John Garrett's father did? Uh, Robert Garrett the first, and we have to designate the, the different generations because there were lots of Roberts in the, the Garrett family. But Robert the first, John Garrett's father, came to Baltimore as a, a young man, about 16 or 17 years old, around 1801. And he became a merchant. And he started a trading house, um, taking consigned goods out to the west by pack horse and Conestoga wagon over pardon me, the National Road, and uh, then bringing back goods from, from the West. And he became very successful. And in the late 1830s, he invited his two sons, John W. Garrett and um, Henry Garrett, uh, two years older than John, to join the firm. And so that's how John Garrett became very familiar with the routes going out to the West, um, because the B&O pretty much paralleled uh, the National Road. And uh, Garrett became very familiar with the territory out there, with the people, with the customs, with the goods out there, the, the challenges of going over the mountains. And uh, so when he came into his presidency, or first onto the board, he was very knowledge knowledgeable about those things. He just didn't know too much about uh, the actual mechanics of, of railroading, which he soon had to learn. He was on a, a steep uphill climb, for sure, in his early years. Now, we've talked about Baltimore a lot, but we should mention that he went to Lafayette College. He Houston. did. He did. He, um, <coughs> his father, uh, Robert Garrett I, insisted that his sons have a good education, and Garrett did uh, come to Pennsylvania. He went to first to Lafayette uh, preparatory school, which was like a little feeder school for the college. And then he went on to college uh, at Lafayette. And he became a gentleman and a scholar, according to his uh, professors. And he, um, he became a very serious student, very interested in the arts, in writing. He was a good writer, uh, which he displayed in, in uh, the many terse letters that he wrote to other railroad presidents, but he was a good writer and uh, very good at uh, arguing his point. So when he took over as president of the B&O Railroad, what kind of shape was the railroad in? Well, it was on the heels of the 1857 Depression. And as you know, through the 19th century, there were major economic depressions, like every 20 years, just huge depressions. And the 1857 Depression was a really severe one, and putting a lot of companies and railroads um, into bankruptcy. And um, the, the B&O, as mentioned, had to depend on these two sources of, of investment. 
So the B&O is really teetering on, on, uh, on going out of business uh, in 1858. And uh, so Garrett really believed that he could bring it back to life and, and find new ways of financing and to um, keep it going on its westward projection. How was the competition between the railroads at the time? I mean, if you were in a town and you wanted to ship, did you sometimes have a choice of one railroad or the other, or, or were railroads monopolies in their own uh, areas? Interesting. In the 1850s, uh, railroading, railroad fever, as they called it back then, just caught on. Uh, once railroads began to prove themselves uh, in the, through the 1840s and early 1850s, every town wanted its own railroad. And you had the big four railroads, but then little railroads sprouted up all over. And uh, this was good for the local towns, but of course it wasn't so good for the big four because it would make them even more competitive to keep up with those little lines uh, in between uh, going from one small town to the other. So yeah, by the 1850s, um, every, not every, but certainly many little towns little boosters in those towns wanted their own railroad. And uh, those railroad, smaller ones could then connect to the, to the larger ones. Was there any regulation of it? There was no regulation uh, for the railroads until the late 1880s after Garrett's death. So the railroads had a lot of free reign. Now Congress was concerned about accidents because those happened pretty frequently and were pretty gruesome. But um, other than for, uh, for that, there was no accounting or financial oversight. The railroads were all powerful in the, eight, in the 19th century, particularly after the Civil War. They ruled the roost, and uh, no one wanted to interfere with, uh, with railroads and their, their uh, ability to really build, economic, um, uh, build the country economically in the uh, hinterlands. So no one wanted to get involved with that. Did they do any collusion among themselves? Like, well, I'll build this line over here if you build your line over there and don't Well, don't they did begin to cooperate with each other, which um, in the 1850s was a real different uh, way of, of dealing in business. I mean, usually businesses would not, a merchant here would not want to uh, cooperate with a merchant down the road. I mean, they would want to compete. But uh, the railroads actually had to uh, begin to cooperate with each other if they wanted to extend their lines. For example, Garrett uh, and the B&O took on many partnerships and mergers uh, as he expanded the B&O to the west, to Pittsburgh, to uh, Chicago. He had to cooperate. But you said that the Pennsylvania Railroad was the, was the main rival. So how, yes. did they, how did they compete? Well, first it was uh, the proximity. I mean, they were adjacent states and they were both headed toward basically the same markets in the West. And there were a lot of reasons why I think Garrett uh, uh, considered uh, J. Edgar Thompson, the, the president of, of the Pennsylvania, to be his, his main um, challenge. You use the word nemesis. Nemesis. Well, he was. He was the bee in the bonnet or <laughs> however you want to explain it. But from the start, when even when Garrett took over on the board in 1855, he already was sending letters to, to Thompson, very interesting letters accusing him of infringing on B&O lines and uh, 
rate cutting, that was a big issue, of course. But um, with Thompson, I'm sure Garrett realized that, 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 that he, Thompson, was so much more experienced in railroading. Thompson was uh, probably the most admired railroad president at the time. He, was, he had uh, railroading in his DNA. His uh, father had been a uh, civil engineer. Uh, Thompson himself, Thompson Jr., got into railroading when he was 19 years old. He helped to build the Georgia state system of railroads before he came back to Pennsylvania. And so he was really very, very astute about railroading. He knew where he wanted the Pennsylvania to go. He uh, had the vision where he wanted it to go, and he knew how to get there. And he could always find financing. And Garrett couldn't always do that. And uh, so um, they, they were always at each other's throats. So you write about how, how Garrett wanted to get into Pittsburgh, and he tried to buy a line to get up into central mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. How would right. Pennsylvania Railroad stop him? Well, politically, one of the Another challenge, and, and again, this, this reinforces what a difficult job a railroad president had at that time. Simon Cameron was um, a very uh, uh, powerful senator from Pennsylvania. And every time Garrett wanted to get into Pennsylvania, Simon Cameron in Congress would throw up roadblocks. And so there was not only the issue of finances to keep a railroad going, and uh, getting enough freight and revenue, there were the political ramifications. And uh, Cameron was really another nemesis for, for Garrett. And, uh, and then he, of course, became Secretary of War in the first year of the Lincoln presidency. And that was even worse for Garrett in that first year of the war. So there were the, you know, the political uh, problems too. How was it worse for Garrett? Because you'd think that the North would be relying on the railroad for the for the war effort. Right, that would be the logic. But Cameron was had um, interests, uh, financial interests in the Pennsylvania, so he uh, he took advantage of the Pennsylvania of the the B and O's uh, vulnerable position during the war, especially the first couple years of the war, and he. Um, he wanted uh, to just, uh, again, throw up roadblocks to keep uh, the B&O um, under control. And what he did in the first year of the war, he, um, he didn't help Garrett to resupply his trains or to um, rebuild the trains after the Confederates uh, attacked the B&O uh, ferociously uh, during the first year or two of the war. So Cameron was just always in the way. Well, you say the BNO kind of took the brunt of the of the Civil War in tearing up railroad lines. So, uh, mm -hmm. who who paid to rebuild them? Uh, well, the government did. The government did pay some subsidies, uh, but not until Cameron left. And the good news for for Garrett was that uh, his old friend Edwin Stanton took over as uh, Secretary of War, and Stanton had worked for Rob for. John Garrett's father, Robert Garrett, uh, in Stanton's early years as, a, as an attorney in Ohio. So when he uh, went up through the political system, uh, Stanton and Garrett formed, they had been friends, but they formed a very tight uh, relationship during the war. And 
-hmm. Once Stanton got into office, he was very helpful to helping to rebuild the B&O. The, the B&O was seriously uh, put out of business almost in the first year, of the, in the first 10 months of the, of the first year of the war. The tracks were destroyed, the cars were overturned, the telegraph lines were torn down. So, um, in fact, at the end of the first year of the war, uh, Garrett and his board of directors couldn't even put together an annual report uh, enumerating all the all the damage because it was so extensive. They they couldn't even get a handle on how how extensive it was. Did they make any money uh, during the war? I mean, was it good they for did. business? They did. They did. I mean, the government reimbursed them, but um, but for Garrett. Garrett was, uh, and the B&O were definitely held back during the war. They were the only railroad that took the brunt of the action. And uh, even though the government compensated, they were very, the government was slow to, to compensate uh, in, uh, financially. So by the end of the war, Garrett was, was definitely behind the other railroads. You said earlier that Garrett was a Southern Democrat, mm -hmm. and you say in the book he was a James Buchanan supporter. Mm -hmm. And um, was there some thought that he was a Southern sympathizer, and was there some moment that he could have gone either way? Yeah, I think, well, he could have gone either way. In 1860, he actually uh, publicly said that the, the B&O was a Southern line, and which it really wasn't. Uh, although it had done some business with the South. How far south did it go? Oh, down through North Carolina and Virginia, North Carolina, not very far south. But um, he, um, he, yes, he could have gone that way, definitely. And in 1860, he said this is a southern line. And then by 1861, uh, with all the, uh, with the, the riot of uh, April 19th, when uh, Lincoln's troops that he was bringing down from a after the firing of Fort Sumter, Lincoln brought uh, 75,000 troops through Baltimore. There ensued a huge riot. And after that, Garrett said, you know, we are going to go with the North. Was, was that on the B&O line that, that mm -hmm. those soldiers were? Yeah. Um, what happened was after the firing of Fort Sumter on April 12th, uh, even though newspapers at the time said, this is not going to amount to anything, you know, nothing's going to happen. Well, Lincoln was not so sure of that, so he called up for 75,000 volunteers. And yes, they came down from the north on B&O and B&O connected lines. And in Baltimore, there was at the time a very strange city policy that, that a train coming down from the north had to stop on one side of the harbor and then had the, the cars had to be pulled through the city to another station to, to continue on south to Washington. And it was during that, that transporting of the cars that uh, the, the, the mob of Baltimoreans uh, just started surrounding the troops. And there were something like a dozen people killed during that. But um, at that point, early in the war, Maryland was really leaning towards secession. And uh, luckily, Marylanders, like Garrett, came to their senses and realized that would just not be good for business. But you say that John Garrett's brother was a secessionist. Oh, yes, and a very avid one. In fact, he was thrown in jail <laughs> at one point. Uh, yes, he was. He was um, very much um, in favor of the Confederacy. At first, he didn't 
want the South to break away from the Union, uh, but he was, uh, he believed in slavery and he believed in the Confederate cause. And what's really interesting about the Garrett story is that there's not too much information between the two brothers, uh, not, not much correspondence. Uh, they remain very close uh, throughout their lives. Uh, if John Garrett uh, disapproved of his brother being a Confederate sympathizer, he didn't say. But yet Henry Garrett, the, the brother, was always off demonstrating uh, in the streets. Uh, he was writing letters to people, favoring the Confederacy. And, uh, but John Garrett never really commented on this in any correspondence. Was Henry Garrett involved with the railroad during the uh, Civil War? No, not directly. He, uh, he remained involved with the, the father's firm, which was called Robert Garrett and Sons. And after um, the father, Robert Garrett I, died, Henry just took over the firm. And he was a very astute businessman, and James Buchanan relied on him for financial support and or financial advice. And um, yeah, uh, he was a very bright man, but he just favored the Confederacy. And John Garrett's son, Robert, ran off to join the Rebel he Army. He did, yeah. This is the second Robert Garrett, Robert Garrett II. And he did um, when he was 16. He ran off to join Robert E. Lee, and uh, which, again, through was another challenge that John Garrett had to face because his brother was now a Confederate sympathizer. His son had run off to join the the enemy, and he was uh, very concerned about that. And he finally sent his men. Garrett sent his men out to find his son, who was marching through Maryland someplace. More than likely, it's unclear exactly where uh, the date when Robert ran off, but it was probably uh, in 1863 when uh, uh, Lee was headed toward uh, Gettysburg. So, so he sent people to yank him out of the army and bring him home? Yes, he did. He did. And But Robert remained a, a Confederate. Uh, Garrett sent his two sons, uh, Robert and, and Harrison up to Princeton after this little escapade by by Robert II sent both sons up to Princeton thinking that they'll be safe way up there in the north but Robert remained a real secessionist and a, a Confederate sympathizer and we mentioned Mary but you want to talk about her a little more when did she his daughter John Garrett's daughter Mary uh, come out of your radar okay Mary um, well, Mary came onto my radar about 20 years ago, <laughs> a long time ago. I just found her a fascinating uh, person, and her story was just totally untold. But um, as far as getting involved with John Garrett's life, uh, she was the fourth of his uh, four children, the youngest of his four children, the only daughter. And he came to really uh, respect her and admire her as she grew into uh, adolescence and early adulthood. And he often said he wished she had been a boy, because even though he had sons. Uh, she was such um, a, a good sounding board for him. She was a very solid person, and she had a great business sense. And when she was about, oh, late teens or so, she started traveling 
with her father on railroad business, and she became uh, Papa's secretary, as she described it. And she sat in on meetings and listened to these uh, railroad presidents ha hammer out deals and fight over rates and, uh, and territory. So she became really a very smart woman. And she used that business savvy um, as in her later years as an activist. She helped to, uh, or she gave the money to start the Johns Hopkins Medical School uh, under the provision that women could be admitted and uh, on the same terms as men and that it be a graduate school. And that was a first. He also says she gained fame for what is called coercive philanthropy, essentially <laughs> no, bribing I, male trustees of educational institutions to change policies to advance women. She did. It, you know, it's interesting to look back on higher education or education in general in the 19th century. It's now big business. But in the 19th century, these universities were just getting started. And the Hopkins Medical School, um, or the Hopkins University, uh, was really living from um, hand to mouth uh, to survive. And Johns Hopkins, the benefactor, had wanted uh, his trustees to open up a medical school. And by the 1880s, there was no money left to do this. And so Mary Garrett and her friends decided they would take this on and raise the money that was needed to open the medical school with the provisions that women be admitted and that uh, the school be a graduate school. And this had never been done before. And so, yes, she bribed the trustees because they were adamantly opposed to this idea of co-education with women, especially in, in medical training. And But it got to the point after three or four years of the women trying to raise the money that the trustees had to accept her offer. She, um, and she got to the point where she said, here's my money. If you want to start your medical school, you have to take my money under my provisions. And they did. They thought they could find what they called a man of large means to fund the medical school, like a Carnegie or a Vanderbilt. But they weren't interested. And Mary Elizabeth was. And she did the same thing at Bryn Mawr College. And her friend, uh, Carrie Thomas, Martha Carrie Thomas, was, uh, had been dean, the founding dean of Bryn Mawr from 1885. Uh, she was um, put in a very elevated position for a woman to be dean of a, of a college. And she, uh, when the president of the college wanted to retire in 1850, uh, 1892, the trustees didn't know who to put, who to replace him. And so Carrie Thomas was the natural successor, but she was a woman. And as many people have noted, she was a bad Quaker at that time because she had sort of lost her Quaker face. She was much more uh, secular at that point. And uh, so Mary and Carrie Thomas were very close friends. And Mary said to the trustees, okay, I will give you $10,000 a year, which was a lot of money. The college's budget at that time was only 100000 so this would have been a 10% increase. She said, I'll give you $10,000 a year if you appoint my friend to be president and keep her there and let her prove herself. And so again, the trustees hemmed and hawed, and they 
they thought about this for about a year. And they finally thought, well, we have to do this. And so they accepted her money. Carrie Thomas was made president of Bryn College, and she remained in that position for many years, 30 years or something, I think. And she really revolutionized women's education. And she was a, a brilliant woman. And so Mary, uh, over the course of the next uh, 25 years, gave not only her $10,000, but much, much more. She gave money to fund scholarships, to bring in uh, great new faculty, to rebuild the camp, not to rebuild, but to expand the campus and to make it the beautiful campus it is today. Why did Mary Garrett select Bryn Mawr as the college to pour her money into? Well, Carrie Thomas was a longtime friend of hers. Hmm. And in fact, Carrie Thomas was uh, part of the group that helped to start the medical school fund uh, with the medical school campaign to uh, try to get money to start the campaign uh, to start the medical school before Mary then jumped in and, and gave all the money. We should so. probably give a plug for your book about Mary uh, Garrett. It's called Mary Elizabeth Garrett Society and Philanthropy in the Gilded Age. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, John Garrett. Um, yeah. You mentioned that he was a, a take-charge kind of guy. What would he have been like to, to be around, to work for? Oh, I think very difficult. He was a micromanager. Uh, he, in her, his early years, in his B&O presidency, he looked at every letter, every invoice that came into the company. And he, uh, he answered letters personally. He was a micromanager with his family as well, with his, his children. And with Mary Garrett, he uh, pretty much controlled their lives, told them what they were going to do in their lives. So I think he would have been extremely autocratic and uh, very domineering. He showed, um, he showed his, his true colors many times, especially um, as a trustee of the Johns Hopkins University. He, he, was, he came to blows with other trustees and, and uh, also, with other uh, railroad presidents, he would huff out of meetings if he didn't get his way. But I have a feeling a lot of them did that. <laughs> they, these were not men of small egos. <laughs> what would have been like to be in a negotiating session with him? Well, he prepared for it uh, in advance. He, he, his main tactic, if he didn't know the exact agenda, his main tactic was to uh, defer any sort of action. Even if the plan put on the table was a good one, if he wasn't sure, he would just simply walk away from it. But um, I'm sure he was a very hard negotiator. And uh, he often, with the Pennsylvania, again, he, he came out on the short end of things. But uh, yeah, I think he, he could hold his own. But he did eventually get his railroad into Pittsburgh. He got his railroad into Pittsburgh, and uh, that that uh, incident actually goes back many years because the Baltimore, many Baltimoreans wanted the B&O to go to Pittsburgh from the beginning, and uh, the board of directors thought differently. They wanted to go down to Wheeling, which would have been a much more southern route. And Pittsburgh at the time in the 1850s and then after the war was a booming city. It was a, the main hub in the upper Midwest. Um, and so um, there was no real logic to go to Wheeling, except that 
the board of directors thought in the 1850s when they were doing that route that by the time they, the B&O, got into Pittsburgh, uh, Thompson and the, and the Pennsylvania already would have been there and that would have put the, put the B&O out of business or certainly lessened it, its business. But yeah, Garrett got um, the B&O into Pittsburgh in I think 1871 after the war. Uh, then he went on to Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati. Uh, he also started two routes down through the South, which was pretty interesting. Um, although the South, after the Civil War, was just economically uh, devastated. And Garrett and the Pennsylvania, and other railroads as well, thought that there were pretty plum pickings down there in the South. And so Garrett um, uh, established two routes on either side of the Allegheny Mountains to go down to the South. He wanted to get to North Carolina and then on to the, the untapped, or, or I, sh I should say just devastated markets of the South. But um, Tom Scott, who was Thompson's uh, vice president of the B&O, stopped him, uh, cut him off, and so Garrett could never really realize those two uh, routes down through the South. When uh, you mentioned a story about the Connellsville and Pittsburgh Railroad and mm -hmm. how that played into the B&O getting into Pittsburgh, how did that work out? Well, um, that was uh, just a railroad that had, uh, it, it was one of the smaller railroads. It was an in independent? It was an independent railroad. Uh, and it, it, um, it, it, it was a possibility that the B&O could have used that in the 1850s. But again, the B&O directors wanted to go to Wheeling. But after the war, uh, Garrett jump-started that idea as a way to connect the B&O in Maryland up to Connellsville and then over to Pittsburgh. And that's what he did. And I might add that the Garrett family, Robert I, John's father, was very instrumental in helping to get financing for those early railroad B&O projects. And he was a real believer in, uh, in the in the railroad, in the B&O. So Garrett was familiar with that little line that just sort of sat up there. And then after the war, he then um, connected it into Pittsburgh. Did they ever mend fences with the Pennsylvania Railroad, or were they always <laughs> Not in Garrett's lifetime, no. No, in fact, um, well, Thompson died in 1872. And, uh, right after, well, a few years after the war, and then Tom Scott took over. And Tom Scott was even more of a foe than, than Thompson. And so, no, they, they never really mended fences. In fact, Garrett, um, during the Civil War, Garrett, uh, or after the Civil War, when Garrett decided to, well, he had to make up for lost time. That's when he went to Pittsburgh and over to Chicago. And during that time, the, the Pennsylvania was eyeing New York because Thompson and Scott knew that New York was the future. And Garrett was still thinking in terms of the Midwest and, uh, and Pittsburgh. And so um, in the 1870s, Garrett decided it was time for him, the B&O, to get up to New York. But by that time in the 1870s, um, that was the most congested part of the, the country, 
<laughs> as it is today. So they but had to build a whole set of tracks? They had to build the tracks. They had to merge. They had to um, partner. He mostly, or buy out other small railroads. Oh, that there was a Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad? Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, that's how Garrett extended all of his lines uh, to the west and up to New York by buying, partnering, uh, merging with those other lines, yeah. And mm -hmm. he did end up getting a station in Philadelphia, which was not too far from where we're sitting. Right yes, here. that's right. And his son, Robert II, actually helped to get that uh, line, that independent line, that B&O line from Baltimore up to Philadelphia. And that was, a, that was again, a, a huge uh, uh, feat to, to overcome. Did they carry passengers everywhere they carried freight? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, well, their, their main source of income was, in the beginning, was coal down from the mountains. And so they would just bring hopper after hopper of, of coal. And after the war, Garrett uh, started or expanded the Baltimore Harbor called Locust Point, making it a huge transportation hub. And he would bring the coal down from the mountains and ship it out to the Midwest or um, export it. And so uh, revenue, uh, coal revenue and uh, freight revenue was definitely more than passenger revenue for the Beano. One thing we didn't mention when we were talking about the Civil War is uh, you say in the story in your book that uh, John Garrett uh, was instrumental in helping get Jefferson Davis out of jail. Yeah, after the war. very interesting. Um, yeah, uh, Jefferson, of course, uh, Jefferson Davis was, was captured after the war and put in prison. And, his, uh, and the federal government really did not know what to do with him. It was very volatile. And they put him in a dark, dank prison, and his health was deteriorating. And his wife, Verena, went all around the country asking politicians to please get her husband out of jail because he was in bad health. And uh, so no one was of any help. She finally came to Garrett, met with him in his house in, in Baltimore, and uh, she pleaded with him to to help. She knew that Garrett was a friend of Stanton, and Stanton was basically her husband's warden because he was Secretary of War. So uh, Garrett, having sympathy again for the South, or maybe just having sympathy for her, said, I'll go to Washington. I will do whatever I can do. And he did. The next day, he went down on the train, and he went uh, into Stanton's house. Stanton was sick in bed with the flu, and Garrett didn't care. He just barged into his bedroom and said, we have to do something with Davis. He, if he dies on our watch, he's going to be a martyr, and we have to do something. We have to get him out of jail and, um, and sent back south to his home. And so Stanton was agog, said, oh, we, we can't do this. We're, but the other option was to try him, to put him on trial in Virginia, where he was being held. And putting the Confederate pre president on trial in the largest slaveholding state in the South would have been just a disaster. So finally, Stanton and some of the other uh, politicians agreed that they had to just get Davis out of their watch and sent back home. And Verena Davis and 
uh, Garrett remained friends for many years. They corresponded. She went up to New York after the war and had a whole new life. So they were afraid Jefferson Davis would die in jail mm -hmm. on their watch, mm -hmm. and so they let him out, and he lived another 20 years. He did, yeah. He lived on in the South, in his home. Mm -hmm. The other thing in your book, you say that it's the B&O Railroad that carried Lincoln's body from Washington yes. north? Yes, yeah, after, uh, after, after his assassination, which is interesting because um, the B&O was also one of the main legs of the, the, of, of the journey from Lincoln's journey from Springfield into Washington for his inauguration in the winter of 1861. He was inaugurated in March of that year. And he, um, so it was ironic that five years later, four years later, he his body would be transported back on B&O trains. John Garrett was president when he died? Or did he he was president when he died, right. 1884. He had been uh, in very bad health for many years, uh, beginning in the mid-1870s when he was in this forensic uh, uh, frenzy of building and, and expanding and uh, building hotels and doing all sorts of things after the war, catching up. Um, he began to display symptoms of depression, which he had suffered as a younger man. And I think just, uh, he, I don't know if he was ever clinically diagnosed with depression, but certainly being a railroad president was not healthy. And uh, so in the early 1870s, he began complaining of the usual symptoms, and his doctors ordered him to uh, uh, take the usual trip to Europe, uh, 18-month trip to Europe to try to uh, recuperate, and he did. But um, he never really recovered, and so for the next um, eight years, nine years, he, he remained very ill, uh, just going back and forth to Europe, still maintaining control over the B&O. And uh, yes, he died in 1884 in Deer Park, Maryland. He grew a beard late in life. He did, he did. He grew a beard, um, and he looked very different from the very handsome young man uh, that he was when he was 25 or 26. And, uh, but um, yes, he, had, he was not in good health at the end of his life. And his wife had died a very untimely death just 10 months before. She had been thrown from a carriage and uh, suffered a uh, brain injury and she never recovered. And Garrett was very, very close to his wife. She was really the ballast in his life. And when she died, I think he just sort of gave up. What kind of shape was the railroad in when he left? Well, it was uh, certainly very expanded from what it was in 1858 when he took over um, out to the Midwest, uh, to Chicago, up to New York. Uh, the, the two routes to the south had sort of died out, but it, it still was in very precarious, as always, a very difficult um, financial situation. And then after three years after uh, he died, there was uh, the the B&O went uh, into receivership. His his son Robert succeeded him as president uh, in 1884 through 1887, and at that time, uh, well, Robert was just not cut out for for railroading, and the B&O went into receivership, and uh, there were, there were investigations about Garrett's. Um, 
bookkeeping. There's some question about he he misrepresented how much debt the railroad held. Right. Is that right? He, he, he probably did. And this is uh, the, the report of 1888 said that he had uh, conspired in tricks of bookkeeping is what the report said. But we have to remember that in the annual reports for railroads and probably all corporations at that time, the annual reports were the primary public relations tool of any president. And they didn't have slick brochures like companies have now. The annual report served a lot of purpose, purposes. And one was to show investors that, oh, this is a, a very solid co company. We are free of debt or what debt we do have, we're paying off uh, regularly, uh, our revenues are healthy, our expenditures are down. And so, yes, he was probably doing that, but uh, most economic historians will say that every railroad president was doing that to some extent. They, they had to. And as the B&O uh, expanded, merged, and, and took in other railroads, it had to take into account their accounting systems as well. And all, all of those accounts had to be folded into the big B&O accounts. So they may have had different um, uh, accounting systems than the B&O. So it was certainly a very untidy way of keeping books. We'll say that. And there, there was federal, uh, the FTC came along and there was federal regulation of, of the railroads, but after Garrett's death. You refer a couple times in your book to the to the Railroad Gazette. What mm -hmm. is that? How how was that helpful to you in writing this? Book? Oh, it was wonderful. There were a lot of uh, it was a, one of the trade um, journals. There were a lot of those journals that popped up around the 1850s as railroads were just making their dominant uh, appearance in the country, and they were very helpful to all um, railroads and to investors and to the general public. And uh, as far as my research, it was just a, a great source of information. But uh, reading through it, it was very interesting because the journals were, were quite big, about, about eight-point type with many articles about every railroad. But uh, no, very, very interesting. And you just get a whole picture reading through these journals, get a whole picture of what was going on in the railroading world at that time. Are you a railroad buff? I am now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm basically a women's historian. My first two books were about women. And uh, again, you know, Mary Garrett led me to write about her father. But no, I, I love railroads. I, I, how could you not love a railroad? Uh, you know, and the B&O is just, uh, being the country's first railroad, is just uh, a, uh, a fascinating topic. And the B&O uh, Museum in, in Baltimore, uh, late in Garrett's life, he hired a public relations man. And uh, Major uh, Joseph Pangborn, who was not a major, but that didn't matter to him. Uh, and he put together, well, great uh, information about the B&O, but he also was the first one to collect all of the old um, locomotives that had been scattered around the country in the cars. And he brought them all together, and they are now in the B&O Museum. So going to that museum is just 
wonderful. It's just fascinating. We also say the BNO stole the show at the Centennial Exposition. It in did, 1896. 1876. Uh, 1876. And that was when Garrett first got the idea to uh, really preserve uh, the BNO as the country's first railroad. The country was just beginning to understand its history and appreciate its short but colorful history. And Garrett sort of latched onto this and, and uh, thought, well, the B&O is a big part of that history. And that's when he started, um, uh, he got the idea to hire a public relations man to write brochures, not brochures, but uh, to come up with slogans that would make the B&O very different from other railroads. Um, the B&O by that point in the 1870s was not as extensive and fast as some of the other, like the Pennsylvania or the, the New York system. But it did have one real trump card, and that was that it was the first, the country's first railroad. And it went through the most beautiful countryside in the country, Garrett thought. And why not capitalize on that? So he did that. You say uh, toward the end of the book, when uh, John Garrett died, uh, Mary Garrett became the de facto head of the family. She did. And if she had three brothers, how did she emerge? And she was the youngest. How did she emerge she as the, the head of the family? Well, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, Garrett just came to trust her, and his two son, his one son, T. Harrison, uh, took over the family firm, and he died young at, at about uh, the age of forty. Robert Garrett uh, had no interest in railroading, as noted, and he also died fairly young. But Mary always had an interest in railroading. Uh, not only did she sit in on meetings with her father. But she absorbed all that information. And she, uh, she was the logical one to take over. She became an executor of his vast estate, a very complicated estate. Did she get involved in running the railroad? Uh, behind the scenes, because the Garretts owned uh, the majority stock. And uh, Mary held on. She had a faction of the, of the board of directors. Who, who backed her idea. So um, if she didn't like a new president that came in, he, out he went. So yeah, she, she had some clout, definitely. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned that you wrote two books about women's history and mm -hmm. you talked about the Mary Garrett one. What was the other one? Uh, the, the, the first one was on the women's exchange movement. And uh, these uh, women's exchanges were consignment shops. Uh, the first one was started just right down the street from where we are now at um, Chestnut and 7th Street. And uh, the idea of the exchanges in, in 1832 with the first one was to give a, a place where women whose families had fallen on hard times, and that happened a lot in the 19th century, to give them a place where they could consign their homemade uh, needlework and uh, their uh, um, beautiful embroidery and such and earn some money. Because at the time, in the early, well, through the 19th century, there was a great stigma to women's work. And so women had to do this very secretly. So this was a, a movement that started here in Philadelphia. And by the end of the 19th century, there were about 100 exchanges around the country. Well, this is the cover of your latest book, John W. Garrett and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. We've been speaking with the author, Kathleen Waters Sander. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.